What would be the perfect Mother's Day gift for a 90-year-old woman? How about motherhood? <laughs> well, last week, we were introduced to Abraham and his walk of faith. And this week, the author of Hebrews introduces us to Abraham's wife, Sarah. Abraham was 75 years old when he left Haran for the land of promise, with a promise that he would become the father of a great nation. But after several years in the promised land, he began to think that a servant born in his house would have to be the heir of his promise, because he and Sarah were barren. When God assured him, that an heir would come from his body, Sarah figured she was the problem. So she invited Abraham to father a child through Hagar, her Egyptian maid. From that union was born Ishmael, who actually did become the father of a nation, the Arab nation. But Ishmael was not the son of promise. That son was to be born of Abraham and Sarah. And that brings us to our text for today where we're told of God's gift to Sarah and Abraham. The 11th chapter of Hebrews, verses 11 and 12. By faith, even Sarah herself received ability to conceive even beyond the proper time of life, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore also there was born of one man, and him as good as dead at that, as many descendants as the stars of heaven in number, and innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. Now if you happen to read this in the NIV, you'll notice a change, a very significant change, because Abraham is made the subject of this verse, not Sarah. And the reason is that there is what I guess I'm going to call a biological problem in the text. The Greek literally says, by faith even Sarah herself received the power for the laying down of seed. And it doesn't work that way. So the translators tried to get around it by saying, by faith Abraham, even though he was past age and Sarah herself was barren, was enabled to become a father because he considered him faithful, who had made the promise. Well, I don't want to get caught up in the linguistic debate or even the appropriateness of changing the focus from Sarah and her faith to that of Abraham, but the real point here is that both Sarah and Abraham were beyond the age of procreation. Sarah was beyond the proper time of life. She was post-menopausal. And Abraham was as good as dead in these things. He was impotent. So how did they respond? When God told them they were going to have a son, well, the same way we might. They laughed. <laughs> they laughed. Abraham was 99 years old when God changed his name from Abram, which means exalted father, to Abraham, which means father of a multitude, and told him that Sarah would be the mother of nations. When Abraham heard the news, he fell on his face and laughed. 
And he said in his heart, Will a man be born to a man a hundred years old? And will Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? When Sarah heard it, she laughed to herself and said, After I've become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? They both laughed. But God had the last laugh. (laughs) He named their son Isaac, which means he laughs. The laughter, however, wasn't the laughter of unbelief. In spite of their initial reaction, they knew God could do whatever he said he would do. And speaking of Abraham, in Romans 4, verses 18 through 21, Paul writes this. He says, In hope against hope he believed, in order that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. And without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God and being fully assured that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. God promised them a son, and he delivered on his promise. Literally. The gift was given. Laughter was born. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. Great joy came into the life when that gift was given. But after the gift was given, we see the gift offered up. Hmm. Verses 17 and 18. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. After giving Abraham and Sarah the gift of a son, God asked for Isaac back. We read about it in Genesis 22. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, of which I will tell you. Now the scriptures make it clear here and in Hebrews that God was testing Abraham. He had no intention of allowing Abraham to kill his son as an offering. Now, God wants us to give ourselves to him as living sacrifices, and he has ordered the execution of some as punishment for their sins, but he does not require human sacrifices to appease him, like some pagan volcano god. But Abraham didn't know it was just a test. All he knew was that God said, Take now your son, your only son, your one-of-a-kind son, your unique son, the son of promise, 
whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I will tell you. Now, what would you think if you received a message like that? If the words, offer up your son, appeared in the sky, you'd probably dismiss it as an unusual cloud formation. If an angel said it, you'd no doubt assume it was Satan, disguising himself as an angel of light. And if you heard a voice declaring it, you'd think you're going crazy. Surely God wouldn't tell you to do such a thing. And even if you weren't sure about God and his nature, it wouldn't make sense for him to tell you to kill the son through whom he had promised to give you descendants as numerous as the stars of heaven and the grains of sand on the seashore. Now talk about conflicting messages. As Chrysostom said of this dilemma in the first century, the things of God seem to fight against the things of God. And faith fought with faith. And the commandment fought with the promise. Abraham, however, did not question the source of the message. He knew God. He had heard his voice before, so he knew it was God speaking to him. And he did what God told him to do. Now today, God speaks to us through his written word. So we don't have to wonder whether or not we are hearing from him. Still, there are some things in his word that we don't fully understand and things that may not make sense to us. But our response to God's word should be the same as was Abraham's. He may not have understood it, and it certainly didn't make sense, but he did what God told him to do. Obedience is the response of faith. And Abraham obeyed. He offered up Isaac. We read of it in verses 9 and 10. Then they came to the place of which God had told him, and Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. In Abraham's mind, it was a done deal. He was offering up his son. God had given him a son, and God had asked him to give his son back. So Abraham was going to kill his son, as God had commanded. But God stopped him. Let's read on, verses 11 and 12. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. And he said, Do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham had passed the test. 
And as a result, we find the gift received back. Verse 19 of Hebrews. He considered that God is able to raise men even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. Now this this helps explain Abraham's faith. He didn't understand why God would ask him to offer his son as a sacrifice, but he was willing to do it, trusting that if he did so, God could raise him from the dead. Now that does not diminish Abraham's willingness to take Isaac's life. He had no guarantee that God would raise him. In fact, there was no precedent for God to do such. No one had ever been resurrected from the dead before. He didn't even have the guarantee we have about life after death. But he knew God would have to do something to fulfill his promises through Isaac. And the only thing he could figure was that God would raise him from the dead. Perhaps that explains why he told the men who had accompanied them to the mountain, stay here with the donkey and I and the lad will go yonder and we will worship and return to you. Abraham believed that somehow God would make it possible for both to return from the altar. And then Isaac questioned Abraham and said, My father, behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham responded, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. What Abraham understood there, what he meant by what he said, we have really no way of knowing. But I really doubt that he fully understood the prophetic element in that statement. And I don't think he really expected God to provide a lamb as a substitutionary sacrifice on the mountain. He thought he was going to have to kill his son. It was only after the angel stopped him that Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns and Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. God had provided a lamb in a way Abraham didn't anticipate. And in doing so, God had given back to Abraham his son. When the writer of Hebrews says Abraham received him back as a type, or literally in a parable, we're not certain what he means. The NIV translates it, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death, and that may be the point. That Abraham had offered his son, had considered him dead, but received him back as from death. Or it may have deeper significance. Referring to the fact that God's providing a lamb prefigured the offering of his son as the ultimate sacrifice for sin. And that through that gift, we can all find life after death. Perhaps it's best to see it both ways, for indeed both 
are true. The point we want to make today, however, is that God gave Abraham and Sarah a son. He was then offered up to God, and then they received him back with God's blessing. To bring this home, we have to ask ourselves, are we willing to do the same? Are we willing to give up our sons and daughters to God? And don't think we've not been told to do so. In Matthew 7.37, we read these words of Jesus. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Do you love Christ more than your own flesh and blood? Do you love him more than you do a son or daughter? And are you willing to prove it by giving them up to him? Are you willing to give up your dreams for your children and grandchildren and offer them up to God for his purposes? If a son or daughter felt the call of God to serve him in Greece or France or Timbuktu, would you encourage them to go? Knowing that would limit your involvement in their lives and theirs in yours? If they wanted to give up a promising career and financial security to minister to those less fortunate in the name of Jesus, putting their future and the future of your grandchildren at risk, would you try to talk them out of it? Is it your prayer that your children love God more than they love you? And are you willing to give them up? I hope so. I hope so. Because only in doing so will God be able to give them back to us with his blessing and with a promise that one day we'll be together around his throne. You know, God has asked us, he's commanded us to offer our children to him. And that's not easy to do. His word never orders us to take them to an altar. But it says he must love him more than them. That means you've got to be willing to let them go. And God will use them. And someday, somehow, he will give them back to us. Sometimes he does it in a way we can't imagine and for which we're very grateful. You know, Nikki grew up wanting to be a missionary. Got her teaching degree. Meryl and I figured she would be somewhere. 
things didn't quite go that way. We offered her. And the Lord sent a farmer. <laughs> For which we are very grateful. <laughs> and planted her, what, 12 miles from us. Doesn't always work that way. But God will give us back our children if we give them to Him. If we hang on to them, we may very well lose them. Are we willing to give up our children? You know, God was willing to give His Son for us. Are we willing to give our sons and daughters to Him? You know, we sing, I surrender all, a lot and I trust we mean it but we don't always think out the implications of all are we willing to surrender even our children to our heavenly father Abraham was and God therefore fulfilled his promises through Abraham's son and his grandson, and eventually through God's own son, who was born of Abraham's seed. Who knows? Who knows what God will do through our children and our grandchildren if we have the faith of Sarah and Abraham. If you need to relinquish your hold on your children this morning for their sake and for yours, I implore you to do so. Let's stand.